The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by a comic shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. And with the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap, and with me is one of my oldest, dearest friends, Mike Rothman. Hey, Cap, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Oh, I'm just dandy. Mike is the editor-in-chief <laughs> of Consequence of Sound. You may have heard him on the show before. We talked with Joe Harris and Chris Carter about that time that X-Files was getting resurrected as a comic book and not a really, really shitty miniseries on television. Oh, God, such a shitty miniseries. <laughs> oh, my God, I can't even get into it. Actually, if I did go into it, we'd go into a, a wormhole similar to the ones we're going to be discussing in the film we're about to talk about. Yes, yes. We're going to be interviewing Richard Kelly, the writer-director behind Donnie Darko, as well as Southland Tales and the uh, film adaptation of the Richard Matheson story, Button Button, a.k.a. The Box. And this is pretty exciting for both of us because, well, like so many people in our exact age demographic, we adore Donnie Darko. Absolutely adore it. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's kind of a horror film. It's definitely a science fiction film, but it's also a coming of age film in a weird way. And it, it appeals to a time period that I know you have definitely <laughs> been obsessed with uh, as much as I have. It's almost been our bonding experience for the past 20 years of us knowing each other, which was the late 80s. Yeah. I, I, think, uh, I think a lot of your listeners have to relate to that era, too. I like to think that Nerdy Show can be a welcoming place for people of all ages, but uh, there's definitely sort of a consensus that we have a 30-something age demographic at this point in time, which is 2017. <laughs> oh, God. We will, of course, yeah. get older, and someday we'll be a 40-year-old age demographic. This is true. And then we'll, we'll actually be uh, doing special uh, episodes on the big chill and um, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and every other baby boomer movie that we'll relate to at that point. But will we relate um, be to it? Great. Because I don't think we will relate to The Big Chill on an intrinsic yeah. level. You know, it's weird. It, it, this is intrinsically tied to Donnie Darko in the sense that I find myself able to kind of understand a lot of the context of different time periods just through weird nostalgia that it's like a skipping stone on water. Like I, I, I'm able to kind of picture sometimes just what that era might be, whether it's just a conglomerate of pop culture in my head that kind of makes me touch and feel and see and think of that certain period. I know that sounds very dense and crazy, but I've tried to understand and extrapolate that in the past. And this is one of my first attempts, but basically nostalgia gets a bad rap. And for me, nostalgia is almost like a form of uh, creative time travel in the sense that I'm so obsessed with different eras. It's not that I, I miss that era, so to speak. It's that I enjoy being able to kind of grasp what those eras are and for me it's digressing on the music or the you know film or the style or even like the feel of what it's like i mean something as simple as sitting in the living room in 1970 versus 1980 versus 1990 versus 2000 my head works that way and so when we, you, you say like are we going to be able to relate to those maybe i don't know 
my perception of different time periods relies a lot on old memories and then also memories that you can pass down from different families. But aesthetic is very big for me. In fact, I, I actually look at aesthetic more than ideology or even thematic values in, in different stories. And so for me, it's aesthetically, I feel like I could maybe relate to some of these things, even if I can't. Well, true. I mean, <laughs> I, like I mean, the, the my, big my chill. The big chill is hypothetically relatable. I just, what I was kind of getting at is that I think our generation might have or have already made our own version of the big chill or versions. Oh, um, absolutely. But, I, I think there's a few of them that have been out there. But what um, you're saying is insofar as nostalgia as a form of time travel and nostalgia getting a bad rap, I agree. And the reason it gets a bad rap in short is simply because it's an easy way to pander to people. And so people do it poorly very often. Then there's things like Stranger Things, which wields it very well and does pander, but does it in a way that's still pretty cool but still is not as yeah. accurate an 80s film, not as true to form, like genuinely feel like you're there as Donnie Darko. Absolutely. And guys, we're already off to a very a very strange discussion here, but I hope you've seen Donnie Darko. If not, it is pretty much a perfect movie, so you should go see it. I highly recommend it. You're going to like it a lot. You know, it's funny. I agree with the perfect movie tag, which is funny because it's such an imperfect movie. It's the same way I look at a song like Once in a Lifetime by Talking Heads. And you look at the construct of that song and it was basically born out of chaos. You know, David Byrne sang a track that was randomly without even knowing what the beat was going to be. And everyone just kind of added to it subconsciously. And it became one of the most perfect songs of all time. And I feel like the same way that you could say that for Donnie Darko, you know, it, it definitely came out of the mind of Richard Kelly, but at the same time, it captured the heart of Jake Gyllenhaal, who was just a rookie at the time. It hit upon a certain medley of songs that I had personally had never really attributed as being a collective in any sort. You know, I never really attributed Joy Division with Tears to Fears. I just never did. And then it was all strung together by an editor that clearly made it to the film it was today. So I'm a big fan of like these sort of chaotic assemblies, you know, like I think, right. I think that's, uh, I think it's interesting how these things come together. And I, I feel like that perfection was certainly never intended. It just came out to be that way. Of course, nothing that ends up being perfect could ever really set out intending to be perfect. No, no. Uh, I guess we should mention before we go any further that the reason we're talking about Donnie Darko here and that we're speaking to Richard Kelly a little later in the episode is that it's Donnie Darko's 15th anniversary and to commemorate the event, both the original theatrical edition and the director's cut have been remastered to 4K and are being shown in select theaters across the country. Which, I gotta go with the theatrical cut. I'm I not agree. a big fan of the director's cut. I, I don't like the over-explanation. I mean, it spoon-feeds it a little bit much to the viewer, and I, I think it's also odd that in the director's cut, there's actually these vignettes of the philosophy of time travel, which is the book within the movie, I wasn't a big fan of those vignettes, and, and it's very awkward, but it kind of feels like a um, like I'm watching, I'm playing the game Mist, <laughs> where like you all of a sudden have these cutscenes where a book slowly opens and you're reading it, and then you get to scroll, and then you go on and try to solve whatever the hell you just read. Yeah, that that kind of took me away. Yeah, I think the information in the book is really fascinating, but the film does such a great job of expressing that information without the text actually appearing. You know, usually directors are evasive and try to keep stuff from you. But in this case, he wanted to make sure everybody knew it. But honestly, I feel he actually achieved it the first time around. It was a little bit more subtle, but it, yeah. it wasn't needed. And I love some of the scenes that they added to the director's cut. They're great scenes. You could probably make a master edit of the film that combines the two. But for me, the real reason that I prefer the original cut, because I can look the other way for the text appearing on the screen, even though it's not my favorite. The reason is 
that the opening sequence of Donnie riding mm. home from the mountain through the neighborhood is set to Killing Moon in the original cut, and it's beautifully done. And I can't recall the name of the song that it was changed to in the director's cut, but it's the it's sequence. It's Tear Us Apart by uh, NXS. There you go. It's good, but no, it's it's no Killing Moon. It's so um, this, the Killing like, Moon sequence is so much stronger. Yeah, it's impossible to take away because, like, look, the Killing Moon was sets the tone for the movie. I mean, that the line "Fate up against your will" is just it's it's perfect. It's like the Hemingway short story of Donnie Darko, basically. Um, <laughs> so. But to the point you mentioned about nostalgia and time travel, I think that's very important. I feel very passionately about this, and Donnie Darko really plays to this. The film presents time travel in a way that, as far as I know, is relatively unique to pop culture. It's not that it is an idea yeah. that hadn't been proposed before, but the idea that the vehicle of time travel is the body, the memory. There's other aspects to it. There's water and metal, as established in the film, but that Donnie himself is a conduit, and it this syncs up very well with the notion of time isn't linear. It's a multiverse of events stacked on top of one another that potentially, spiritually, you as a spiritual entity, as a soul, to use a term that everyone kind of understands roughly, you as a soul are connected to your body and every tangential version of your body across all multiversal variations. So hypothetically, if you were to time travel, the only way to time travel would be to project your consciousness to an earlier point within the same vehicle, a.k.a. your body, which isn't even really your body yep. because your cells are constantly dying and being replaced. But uh, I, don't, I don't know, maybe the, the neural architecture is the same. <laughs> I, I've gone very deep very quickly. <laughs> no, no, no. That, it, which I, I think you're right on point. I, it's a very big sell, which is why I think, you know, when it re- was released back in 2001, I think it went over a lot of people's heads. And that's not to sound smug and pretentious or anything. It's just the reality of the beast. Because I didn't see the film until around 2003 when I was in college. And, Ditto. And I became so enamored with it. I watched it a bunch of times, actually, that weekend, just because I was so blown away by the film and I wanted to dissect it. And I still dissect it. I think, I think that says a lot about the film is just how complex it is, is that every time you watch it, you could find new and different things to kind of take different angles. I mean, Yeah, just watching this film, prepping for the interview again, because it had been a few years since I'd seen it, after having binged it like repeatedly for, for years straight before that, I had brand new insight. And, and weirdly, new insight into the film based on having watched Richard Kelly's other films, Southland Tales and The Box, that they all have an interconnected aspect to it, which is something that I'm really eager to ask him about. Yeah, and you did a little Richard Kelly marathon, which I'm jealous of. I did not get to do that. Um, <laughs> I just listened to the soundtrack. I, one of my, it's funny, I didn't even realize this, uh, but I've had Spotify since it first debuted in the United States because you know we, we write about music on Content with the Sound. So it was a big deal. We had anticipated it. And the second it came out, I bought it. And I've been a subscriber ever since. But I didn't realize this until yesterday or the day before that the first playlist that I assembled was actually the Don Yarko. <laughs> like the full Michael Andrews score, every song where it was supposed to be with the score. I mean, I must have spent like a couple hours assembling this thing, but it was just something that just totally got swept under the hundreds of other play- playlists I have. But I scrolled all the way at the bottom there. It was right there. So I, that was the only way I was able to relive this movie because I'm waiting to see it when it comes to the music box in a couple of weeks. I love this movie. I love this movie. I can't <laughs> say it enough. You didn't actually watch both versions yesterday when you're doing your marathon, did you? Uh, no, no, I didn't. But I did watch <laughs> that would the. Be insane. I, I, Mike, I thought about it, but I had to get up early today. <laughs> 
Donnie Dark was often called the first cult film of the 21st century, and considering it came out in 2001, hard to argue that it was a phenomenon. Like everyone, everyone was yeah. watching it back in like 2003. It was getting passed around like crazy. It's weird because you almost could say it caused the ubiquity of pop culture fandom in terms of merchandise also. Because I remember shortly after that, the Spencers and the Hot Topics and whatnot definitely bought into the whole Donnie Darko thing. And, you know, we grew up loving all sorts of merchandise, you know, whether it was Star Wars or Batman or Ninja Turtles or anything. But, you know, horror was very rare. And, and, and we got to see that on the front line growing up. Yeah, well, I mean, when McFarlane unveiled Movie Maniacs, exactly, it was huge. I mean, the opportunity to have a figure of the crow, you know, that was so special. I mean, I used to look forward for the announcements for those, those Movie Maniacs lines kind of like how we look at festival lineups now. Like, I, I was <laughs> so true. excited to, to know who they were going to get. Like, you know, and there were all these rumors online and, you know, what rights didn't McFarlane get to. But it was so piecemeal compared to what it was post Donnie Darko. I mean, the late 90s, you took what you could get. And, you know, if you had the six figures that McFarlane did, that was it. Now, and I, and I do definitely credit Donnie Darko for this, it proved that this like sort of counterculture could be a lifestyle of sorts. And then you had the NECAs and the real toys and all these other ones just like pumping out figures after figures. And I'm almost overwhelmed by like all the merchandise that's available now. And I, I mean, I can't even keep up with it anymore. Ditto. So it's interesting how it did kind of change the whole culture. But, you know, 2001 is a very crazy year that this came out in. I mean, obviously there's 9-11, but I mean, it's the same year that Christopher Nolan released Memento, which kind of changed the way that people get film brought us a newer tour. It was the same year that Darren Aronofsky did Requiem for a Dream. And above all, it's the same year that David Lynch released Mulholland Drive, which, I mean, you got Mulholland Drive, Donnie Darko, <laughs> Requiem for a Dream, Memento. I'm sure I'm missing a few other ones, but that is a fucking crazy year. <laughs> uh, no one's ever laid that like, out for me like that, Mike. That's staggering. <laughs> that's, that's like, I'm, a, right? I'm exhausted I mean, it, just thinking about it. Holy shit. You watch those films back to back and you're going to have a major, major problem <laughs> <laughs> of Vanilla Sky also. Oh, God. Oh, Cameron my God. Crow yes. In, Cameron Crowe got into it also. Oh. Pretty wild. Although I think Rec Room and Memento are actually 2000, although I do think that they got popular in 2001 because of home video. So they did. Those, yeah, those films did way. have a life after theaters that was pretty strong. Yeah. yeah. And it was a great time for these type of counterculture movies. And I mean, when I think about Everything else that was going in pop culture at the time, especially music, which was just, you know, thank God for the strokes, but in Radiohead, but at that time it was just garbage. And so film was definitely, at least for me, an escape. And since I saw Donnie Darko in 2003, it was like the pinnacle of all that. It was like, I, you know, riding this wave of these great, cool movies and then being able to stumble upon this. It was just like, holy shit, there's a film that totally gets it. And I think a lot of people today are probably seeing that with Stranger Things, for sure. Like, I'm sure a lot of kids now are definitely seeing that sort of nostalgia there. Um, yeah, and I think the time period is also important, not just for the sake of nostalgia, but because of what it represents in terms of the status quo of the human condition. Because we're the last generation of people who are bridging the gap between the analog and the digital age. And we are, yeah. Our reality has already been fundamentally transformed. And if it continues to exist by the time that we're old, our grandparents, if they're still alive, are already having a very hard time keeping up with where we are right now. Yeah. And hopefully we'll be doing better than them, but the world will definitely be a thousandfold changed from what they experienced. I just hope that I don't wake up to 
<laughs> an airplane part that crashes to my, my, my uh, ceiling anytime soon. You know, uh, we, as long as that doesn't that. happen, I'll be okay. <laughs> you know? But we've been talking a long time. Let's talk to Richard Kelly and maybe get some answers about um, where this film came from and where he's going in the future. Uh, also, I want to point out that we have a pretty high quality threshold here on Nerdy Show, but unfortunately, the quality of this interview, there's some pretty consistent artifacts throughout the audio here, but it was so fun, we didn't want to not release this. So just a heads up, and without further ado, with us now is Richard Kelly. Hello. Richard, I was curious where you were on a personal level when you were writing the first draft of Donnie Darko. I was 23 years old. And I had just graduated from USC film school with a film degree at significant expense from my generous family. <laughs> and I was working at a post-production house in Hollywood and as a client assistant, which is basically uh, a waiter and uh, a janitor making about $6 an hour, making a cheese and cracker plate and washing dishes and going on food run errands. And uh, I made a cappuccino for Madonna. I made a cheese and cracker plate for her as well. I went on food runs for Puff Daddy and Jennifer Lopez, and I got the order wrong and had to go back and correct it. <laughs> and I was just thinking, oh my God, what am I doing with my career? And I had all of this education in place. I knew where to put the camera, and I knew all my technique, and I had all my visual design skills, but I hadn't yet written a feature-length screenplay. I was very frightened of doing that because I didn't want to finally write a screenplay and have it turn out poorly and be disappointed in it and feel as though I had failed. So I was just waiting and waiting and waiting and it held out for when it finally felt right to write a narrative featuring screenplay. And in October of 1998, Donnie Darko just came out of me in a 28-day period. I just wrote it in the same time frame as the movie. And it just held out. Yeah, that was it. Why did you decide to set it in uh, 1988? And was it like the election between Bush and Dukakis? Or was it just a particular time that meant something to you when you were growing up? Yeah, it, it had to be that way. It was very specifically, it needed to be 1988. There was no question about it. And Donnie is a little older than I was in 1988, but it felt personal and it felt like a world that I knew. And it felt like a world that I had not seen portrayed in that specific kind of way in a narrative film before. And then when I was shopping the project, the first thing out of a lot of people's mouths was, why are you setting this in 1988? And they were kind of dismissive of it and discouraging me from setting it at that time frame. And I think a lot of people passed because of that. But I was very adamant that we maintain it. And the music was so specific. And so it was definitely, it was a hurdle for a lot of people, but I think it paid off ultimately. Yeah, I mean, what's kind of crazy is that 80s nostalgia is huge now, but at the time, I, mean, I think people were more obsessed with 70s at the time. And what's interesting about 88, though, is that it kind of starts shifting into that weird period where it's not exactly the 80s and it's not exactly the 90s. Mm -hmm. Was there any struggles you had capturing that era, or did you just really lean on your memory? Well, I'm really, really anal retentive about details. Like, I would obsessively talk to my transportation coordinator about, like, make sure all the cars are era-specific. Like, I don't want to see any modern cars, you know, and I obsess over details like that. I mean, even in the box, I went to great expense to digitally restore the Richmond, Virginia skyline to 1976. You know, I, I go to great lengths to make sure that everything is era-specific. And with, with Donnie Darko, it was, we knew we were doing 1988, but we did not want to go to kitsch with a style and costuming that you know, we didn't want to put Seth Rogen in like a Michael Jackson thriller jacket. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pandering. You didn't hilarious, pander. As hilarious as that might have been, 
I want to see Seth wearing a Michael Jackson jacket. I do, but we didn't want to put Maggie Gyllenhaal in Cindy Lauper hair. You know, we wanted to kind of keep it somewhat conservative to the Virginia suburbs. Yeah. If the movie were set in Manhattan and these were kids running around trying to get into clubs in Manhattan, that's a different story. You know, the, the costuming would be different, but this is a kind of a Fantasia of Virginia recreated in Long Beach in the outskirts of LA. You know, we were doing this sort of mythical Virginia suburb, but shot in Los Angeles. You know, you can kind of yeah. Los Angeles, you know, but I mean, it's, that's okay because it's not a real city. It's a, it's a mythical recreation of my yeah. <laughs> memories of Virginia, you know, so all the kids ended up wearing uniforms at the school. You know, we ended up shooting at a Catholic school and April Ferry was like, Richard, it would be really a lot easier to put the kids in uniforms. Oh, I, I don't have the money to dress 200 <laughs> extras in 80s clothing. And she's a, you know, an Oscar-nominated costume designer and one of the legends in the business. And she's like, Richard, can we put them in uniforms? And like, you know what? That works for the story because Donnie, you know, confronting conformity and, and the educational system and it's a Catholic school. And okay, this, this makes sense. Let's do this. And that was a great move contextually, really, yeah. because both Mike and I went to various private schools growing up. And I think you don't see that much. People like to show that individuality on screen and not really casually address a, a religious school environment. Well, yeah, and, and again, we shot it at Loyola High School in Los Angeles, and it is a Jesuit school. Oh, and okay. there's a lot of Catholic fans of this movie. And my mother is, I guess, Methodist. In her childhood from Texas, and when she came to Virginia, we would go to church as kids. But then, you know, my dad was a scientist and worked for NASA and was not particularly religious at all. And so... I was not raised Catholic by any means, but there is quite a bit of Catholicism in the film that people see. And with Grandma Death being a former nun and the last temptation of Christ, Marquis, and the sort of idea of Donnie being a Christ figure, I guess there is this resonance. Well, let's go down that particular neural pathway. There appears to be a conceptual continuity between all three of your films so far, even though they're all extremely distinct from one another. We've got fourth dimensional rifts manifesting as a water-like substance, divergent timelines that can be read as purgatories filled with trials, the end of the world, and the human soul's interaction with these forces. And this seems like something you're carrying around with you at all times. I was curious about your spiritual yes. background and you, how you, your work you're reflects that. You're very accurate. <laughs> I mean, the films are definitely very connected. This is all very much by design, and these are interconnected themes that I'm continuing to explore and will continue to explore in future films. And I think there is a, a connection between religion and science that is very of great interest to me. I think that there is a, something that can be very cathartic about trying to illustrate some kind of design strategy to the world. And it's, it's important for me to remind myself and those around me that we have the ability to kind of control our destinies and that we have free will. And it's part of the reason why I set my movies in the close vicinity of presidential elections, because... You know, we have the ability to control what happens to our country. And a lot of that you see in our behavior surrounding elections or our regrets or our volatility surrounding election years. So, yeah, it's a lot of big stuff. It's a lot of uh, exploration of free will and religion and science and a lot of big ideas that I could probably talk about forever. <laughs> well, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't mind that because the outline that you've created within these films is one that's particularly fascinating and has unique quirks, at least from what I've seen, unique to your work. I was curious, are these themes still something that are a major part of your focus on writing since we haven't heard from you filmically since the box? Is it still something you're working with? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of new stuff that I've been working on. There's a lot of films that are in the pipeline, and they're all very ambitious, and they're all different, and they all have a connection to my previous work, but I, I'm trying to make each one different and explore new themes and new timelines and new characters. And I am really, hopefully, in setting up a workflow where I can make several films back-to-back, and it won't be a long hiatus the way you know it has been since. <laughs> The box came out. I mean, it's been a long time and it's um, kind of depressing to think about how long it's been, but I haven't been idle. I've been working constantly and there is a ton of material that's been prepared. And hopefully the new films will be better off because of all the time that I put into the screenwriting process. So yeah, it's a lot of writing and definitely looking forward to being behind the camera again, that's for sure. Well, right now it seems like there's been a pretty big stress on not genre films so much, but I'm just like experimental sci-fi almost like I feel like there's just a little bit more of a, an openness for it. And also there's just seems to be like a more hyper awareness of more fringe type storytelling right now, at least maybe on a TV level. And I guess, I don't know, maybe so much on a mainstream film level anymore, but it does seem like these stories, there's more ways to tell them now. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you see it as easier now than it was maybe say 10, 15 years ago to tell against the grain style storytelling. Yeah. I think people are much more open and, hungry for um, unconventional narratives and experimental narratives now. A lot of it is the renaissance of television, but also the world has gone crazy. You know, we've, yeah. we've got uh, Donald Trump in the White House. There's nothing crazier than that. And I think there's an appetite for resistance art and there's an appetite for political stories. And people will buy tickets to something that is making a political statement and they will vote with their wallets. I think that's an important thing for the people who are making films and particularly the people who are financing films and distributing them to remember that people will show up for something new as long as they know where to find it and they have proper marketing campaign to sell something new. It's, it's certainly achievable. And uh, I'm trying to remain hopeful. And I think that there's a lot of people who are activated right now by our uh, political nightmare <laughs> we stumbled into. You know, it's been 10 years since Southland Tales and with Donald Trump and social networks taking over society and the way the media is portraying things to left and right. Do you kind of want to just say, like, I told you so? <laughs> I mean, listen, more than anything, I just want to finish that movie. <laughs> There's a lot more there, and I want to do the big, long, epic version of it, and I want to realize the graphic novel prequels with animation, and there's just a lot more that I want to do with that project. So I just want to finish it more than anything. And part of the reason why I'm so happy to bring Donnie Darko back to theaters is just to remind people that these stories can be mainstream and they were always designed to enter the mainstream. And I'm very happy to have the word cult ascribed to my work. And it's a badge of honor and I appreciate it. But I want to push these stories into the mainstream because I think that's where they can exist. There's plenty of new stories I want to tell, but I also would love to revisit Southland more than anything. Have you ever thought about shifting the medium for it? I think the, the bigger version of it is including the existing film. If I were to ever do the realize the first three chapters, it would probably be like a six hour thing. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a huge story there. And there's even the script within the movie that uh, Boxer and Krista have written. <laughs> the power. And, and that's almost like a sequel within the movie them looking forward into the future. So there's a lot of layers to it, and there was just this perception of failure around that film and that has existed for so long that it's hard to wage an argument for revisiting it, but I think that there is a lot there, and I would, more than anything, that's what I would love to do. So I don't know. I think there's time to get to that, hopefully, and you know, if I can have more successes on other projects, it can help maybe facilitate that. So we'll see. <laughs> 
Well, recently you teased the possibility of a Donnie Darko follow-up being one of those potential next projects. Listen, I don't control the rights to, yeah. to Donnie Darko. I, I had to relinquish them when I was 24 when I signed a deal to direct the movie. I don't control them, and I, I really never have since the year 1999 or 2000. But I am open to exploring something. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Bigger and new in that universe, and I would only want to do it if there were the right people involved and if it were a worthy thing to do. More than anything, I just want to protect the intellectual property and hope that nothing cynical or ill-advised is ever done with it ever again. <laughs> Understandable, so we'll yeah. See. And we'll see what happens. There's an open door there, so we'll see. <laughs> Do you think it would be just within that world with totally new characters, or would you want to actually revisit certain characters from that story? Or I think there's, there's a lot of possibilities. I can't get too specific, but I want to keep the existing film kind of protected and if there was ever anything new, if there was ever an additional story to tell, it would definitely be something new. But there are a lot of possibilities. I just don't know what's ultimately going to happen. We've got to kind of just take things step by step, so I can't really get any sure. more specific than that. <laughs> That's understandable. Let's focus back on Donnie then. I mean, we got the 15th anniversary release, which is very exciting, the 4K restoration. Having just rewatched the DVDs, I can't wait to see it that clear for the first time. But when I was watching it, some questions bubbled up that I hadn't thought to ask before. So I figured I'd go straight to the source. Gretchen's life was positively affected by Donnie's presence in it until she died. But Halloween night, there was potentially something really horrible going down with her mom and her dad. What was in store for her in the timeline without Donnie? It seems like her dad had located her and her mother and had potentially done something bad. Yeah. That was sort of a subplot that was like never fully realized, I guess, that it was kind of intended maybe to throw the audience off into thinking that Gretchen's father might somehow make an appearance and complicate matters. But um, yeah, that, that was sort of, uh, I guess, like a misdirect in some ways. But I do believe that maybe he did show up and do something bad. And again, Donnie sort of reverses a lot of, um, a lot of people die in the Tangent universe and they're resurrected at the end of the film, arguably. In rewatching it recently, I wondered, is Gretchen doomed either way, but a different fate? 
I don't know. I, I don't know if she's doomed either way. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. <laughs> 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 that's kind of dark. That's kind of dark to think that that's the case, but at least he's not getting run over by a trans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the very least, that's not happening. <laughs> but, You're right. She could be stabbed you know. to death by her dad. It- <laughs> no, but, <yeah. laughs> well, this movie is so layered, and there's so much depth to just the world at hand. And then also the characters, and a large part of that is the fact that you've written your own rules and principles in there with like the whole philosophy of time travel. And I imagine a lot of research went into that. And I just wanted to know what your process was, just you know, creating this kind of science that's in the movie, and what books you might have read leading up to Donnie Darko. Well, I mean, I guess there's a Stephen Hawking book, which is sort of a pretty foundational piece of uh, pop science. I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot of information in A Brief History of Time, which you see featured in the story and scenes with Noah Wiley and Jake Gyllenhaal. But there's just uh, a lot of world building or metaphysical stuff that I just felt like I needed to solve in my mind or, or explore. Solve is not the right word. There's no solution to a lot of these mysteries, obviously. <laughs> but I wanted to start elaborating upon some logic. You know, it's something I'm continuing to In the box, it sort of established that the characters are operating in a kind of purgatory and being judged. And with these films having this sort of conceptual continuity ebbing between them, it was hard for me not to also wonder if that's what Donnie's tangent universe was, as he was always fated to die with the plane engine, but that he had this moment, this tangent reality to kind of prove himself and be judged. Well, I think that, again, the movies are connected, and that's certainly, I think, uh, a worthy theory, I guess. I mean, some of the stuff you can never answer definitively, or I can mm-hmm. never answer definitively, because it would be giving kind of concrete answers that we really don't have in life. You True. Know, a lot of it's <laughs> speculation, but uh, they are all connected, that's for sure. Along that line, I have a question that's just a piece of personal curiosity, really, because you talk about you know the brief history of time being an influence, and that comes from a very scientific direction, though there's certainly lots of ideas that could give birth to metaphysical concepts. There's a book that Jim Henson was a huge fan of called Seth Speaks. I was curious if you ever heard of this particular combination of metaphysical and science. No, I, I've never heard of that book. It's called Seth, as, as in the name Seth? Yeah, S-E-T-H. It's allegedly written by a thought form entity projecting through a woman who is sort of an inadvertent psychic medium. And Jim Henson had a stack of these books, and he'd give them to everybody who he collaborated with. David O'Dell, who wrote The Dark Crystal, was heavily influenced by it, and it had a big influence on the screenplay. Wow. I've never heard of it. Dude, it's fascinating, because it's like someone's explaining simulation theory and many other bleeding-edge theoretical physics ideas that have sort of swelled in our cultural zeitgeist now, trying to explain them in layman terms in the early 70s, late 60s. Wow. (laughs) I mean, it sounds incredible. I definitely need to check it out. (laughs) Cool. Right on. (laughs) It was a shock to me. There seemed to be a lot of potential parallels to your work, so I figured I'd ask. (laughs) Anyways, back to Donnie. (laughs) Let's talk about the soundtrack. The film's soundtrack is such an integral part of the movie's magic. I was curious if there was an 80s album that you feel encapsulates the decade best, not just in sound, but in the state of being, much like how Donnie Darko itself encapsulates a really clear moment. Well, a lot of the artists in the soundtrack, to me, define the greatest of 80s music, and they are UK-based bands, sort of post-punk new wave, I guess, is the category yeah. that they exist in. And I think Echo and the Bunnymen, and then Tears for Fears, 
I think that Fierce for Fears album. Songs from the Big Chair. Yeah. Yeah, that one probably is pretty definitive. How long did you know which songs would be included? Like, did you write them into the screenplay when you had been working on this, or was it kind of just after the? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Fierce for Fears was in the script. I had to fight pretty hard to shoot that big Steadicam sequence in the school. It took almost a full day to shoot that, and the producers were really unhappy (laughs) that I was spending a day shooting that because no one is delivering any dialogue. There's no one speaking. It's just a big kind of lyrical music video sequence. And I knew that it was going to connect with that song. We didn't have the rights to the song. We couldn't afford it. And I was spending a whole day burning through a bunch of money in the first week of principal photography shooting that sequence. And then I immediately called my editors. I'm like, once you get the footage from the lab, please cut it together to the song. And then they did. And Friday of the first week of principal photography, I brought a tape of the sequence and I put it in a, one of the VCRs in one of the trailers. And I brought the crew, I brought the crew over. I'm like, look at the sequence, guys. And they all looked at it. And everyone looked at me and they said, okay, this is really good. We get it. <laughs> you yeah. got to get this song. Send this to the band. So they sent it to Tears for Fears and immediately we engaged with them and they were excited and wanted to help us get the song. So sometimes you just got to do it and the producers get pissed. But then if the footage turns out well, you're in good shape, you know? So it's a risk to like shoot something when you don't have the song. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, <laughs> but it's something that's paid off for me uh, several times. And um, a lot of these musicians have been very generous with me. How did the Gary Jules version come about then? That was um, Michael Andrews, our composer. I was working really closely with Mike on the score and we were in his studio at his house in the Hollywood Hills. And the Sundance deadline was looming. It was around the holidays, December of the year 2000. And we were trying to finish our mix and get ready because we were in Sundance next month. And he's like, you know, my friend Gary Jules, we grew up in San Diego together. And he does this really lyrical ballad version of Mad World, the Tears for Fears song. He played the original Tears for Fears for me. And it was fast. He's like, He's like, I know it's too fast paced for the end of the movie, but his version is the ballad. And so Gary drove up in San Diego and he laid down the vocal and Mike played the piano melody. And it like happened in one day. The whole thing was recorded in one day. And we were like, let's put it at the end of the movie. <laughs> it was a kind of a, just, this is really cool. And we were able to make a deal with the publishing with Fierce for Fierce because we already had, we're licensing Head Over Heels in such a prominent way. And I never in a million years that I think it would become like a number one Christmas single in the UK, <laughs> yeah. you know, go on to be in commercials and American Idol. I mean, it's just, it's wild. And, and what's more, now it's gestated this whole trope of fast pop song played slow on a piano, still done best in the original form. Yeah. But it's a whole thing now. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I do have to give Michael Andrews a lot of credit for kind of having the idea and also Gary as well. I and mean, they just knocked it out of the park. Well, Richard, <laughs> thank you so much. I am definitely looking forward to seeing what you're doing in the future. I'm excited to see what you have. Uh, it seems like you've been teasing some sort of project you've been working on, but you haven't really confirmed what it is. Yeah, well, there's, there's many of them. <laughs> there's many of them. I can't confirm anything until the ink is dry. Right. <laughs> That's I'm true. eagerly awaiting that moment. Cool. Well, so are we. Yeah, we look forward to hearing about yeah. it, man. Now, Mike, you told me that Songs from the Big Chair is also your pick for the 80s album most representative of the decade. I think it's the most important album of that decade. I think it sums up that decade. I mean, I can't think off the top of my head three more iconic tracks of that era than Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout, and Head Over Heels. I mean, the fact that they all came off that same album is unbelievable. And you could even throw in Working Hour in there. 
I mean, I, I would even toss in I Believe also, but it's interesting how important that album became in the years since, but also just when you really think about the themes and the sounds and the theatricality of the album, like it, it, it's so quintessential 80s and it helps that it came out smack in the middle of the decade. I mean, February 1985, like it doesn't get any more middle than that. And yeah, that's my choice. It's their best album, I think. I mean, I know a lot of Tears fans will probably, you know, name maybe like Seeds of Love or The Hurting possibly, but I think it's pretty hard to make an argument against that album. Well, hey, there's not a Tears for Fears record that I don't like. They're all fantastic. Yeah. What about you? If you had to pick one album that established itself over that decade, what would it be? Well, I guess my slant when I asked Richard Kelly that question wasn't about defining the 80s, but more so encapsulating the decade in the same way that Donnie Darko encapsulates the 80s, like a portrait of that time period as a state of being. Everything that was happening, not just musically, but socially. And Songs from the Big Chair is great because it taps into a lot of the way that people were just sort of feeling. It's very nonspecific, but people could very universally apply that to themselves. And it's half the reason that it still is such a strong record as it is today. But there's an idea that I've been sort of uh, tracing lately, looking at the ubiquitous 80s record, as in not a record that is indicative of the 80s, but when an artist who was formerly successful for doing one thing made a record to appeal to that time period, often against their will, or because just due to some ill-advised recommendations or too much cocaine. So there's a whole list of them. You can look at especially prog bands who made some big fucking mistakes. I've been kind of kicking around the idea of doing a list or a show or something outlining this. There's the Jethro Tull record, Under Wraps, which is this synth-pop, paranoid Cold War thing. There's the Kansas record, Drastic Measures, which is a fantastic record, but not Kansas, but still great. There's the Carly Simon record, Spoiled Girl. It's this beautiful, quintessential 80s synth-pop stuff that did not click at all with Carly Simon's audience, or any audience for that matter, but it's full of songs that should have been hits at that time period. So there's this whole thing kind of going on there, which led me to a record by Joni Mitchell, which has been all but forgotten. Most of her fans hate it. It's called Dog Eat Dog. I love Joni Mitchell. I've not actually seen this. This is interesting. This came album, out the same year as, uh, as Songs from the Big Chair. Exactly. It's right in the middle. So this record for me is the one I point to as this. And I know it's so obscure, fucking typical of me, but it... <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> this record absolutely 100% encapsulates the 1980s in such a profound way, and not just in its sound, because this is Joni Mitchell produced by Thomas Dolby. I was just going to say, I saw the name. That's how I found it, and she hates it. She doesn't like the production, but Thomas Dolby was actually a huge fan of hers, so he was hired to sweeten her sound and make it seem more appropriate. But great art happens sometimes regardless of what an artist intends to happen. And the fact of the matter is that the subjects that Joni was tackling in all the music on here is so specifically of its time, these songs would actually feel kind of wrong. Like, they're more perfect for having been done in this style. It's almost like a concept record. They have songs about the famine in Ethiopia, the dawn of megachurches, the televangelists and scandals. There's a song called Fiction that, I mean, the, the scary thing about this record is much like many aspects of, of the socio-political corner of, of the 1980s, it is just as powerful now as it was then, and that is terrifying. Well, I mean, this country continues to revert back to 80s nostalgia in terms of not just <laughs> on Stranger Things level, but also from a political level. Yep. Um, you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I can't recommend this record enough. I, oh, I'm listening to it tonight. I'm going to put it on when I'm uh, 
going through my I have to, I have some cleaning to do in my uh, pop culture room as I call it. I love the pop culture room. I love spending the night in the pop culture room. <laughs> That's what, that you do sleep in there. This is good. <laughs> but there is actually a single song I can also point to that's not Joni Mitchell that I feel captures a part of the 80s that is overlooked. But Stranger Things actually does a great job of tapping into it. And that is Boy in the Bubble by Paul Simon. Boy in the Bubble. Yeah. Why have I... Well, Peter Gabriel I covered it on it. his covers record a few years back. If that rings a bell. That's why. The Peter Gabriel version is great, but like all the tracks on Scratch My Back, kind of what's unique about them is that he does them in a very slow, weird Peter Gabriel way. But the Paul Simon version is really fast and boisterous in a pop song while talking about things that were like technological advancements of that time period that he managed to really collect and create the singular idea of this is all fascinating, or as he says in the song, these are the days of miracle and wonder, but at the same time, they're also terrifying. Think about the boy in the bubble and the baby with the baboon heart. There's lasers in the jungle, lasers in the jungle somewhere. Interesting. Yeah, that song is a crystallization of it, and then the Joni Mitchell record is like a full record of it. Yeah, it would appear that the video for the song, Boy in the Bubble, is uh, supposed to be pretty intense also. Yes. Which, you know, 80s videos were unbelievable, so... I think these are two solid records. I mean, I'm excited to listen to Doggy Dogs because as I'm looking at the personnel on this thing, good Lord, not only do we have Thomas Dolby, but we also have Amityville horror star Rod Steiger doing spoken vocals for the evangelist speech. I love Rod Steiger. And if you've seen Amityville horror, he plays a great priest who goes blind. Um, I didn't even know that. uh, That's amazing. (laughs) That's so good. Pretty great. She has to do what with Michael McDonald on it. Ooh, I love Michael McDonald. James Taylor does backup vocals on this. So does Don Henley, our favorite uh, resident dickhead over at the, the Eagles. <laughs> so this is, this, is a, this is a pretty powerhouse record. I would say that this is, the guest list alone makes it uh, stand out as a, as a huge 80s album, too. Yeah. Okay, so folks, if you enjoyed this episode, then I'm going to have to ask you to please, please, please rate and review us on iTunes. That's the free and easy way to express your love for this show or all the shows on the Nerdy Show Network if you're uh, feeling really generous. That way, more people can find out about the show. But if you super duper liked it, you can put your money where your mouth is and support us on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash nerdy show, you'll find our page there and a number of different tiers to support us at. Even at a dollar, you get early releases of programs. And from there on, it's all bonus content, bonus content, exclusive stuff to delight you in many ways, including outtakes and extended conversations from this very episode. You can also shop on Amazon via our Amazon links. We have everything you need at nerdyshow.com slash Amazon. Just click through that portal and everything you buy will not cost you anything extra, but will give back to Nerdy Show and help fund all of our programming here on the Nerdy Show Network. But, uh, you know, something I don't think we've mentioned before is that Consequence of Sound also does podcasts. You know, they co-produce State of the Empire, our Star Wars speculation podcast, which, yes, it is coming back soon. And, yes, we are going to be at Star Wars Celebration. So keep an eye out. Reach out to us if you're going to be there, too. But you guys have been putting out a lot of new shows lately, including a Stephen King show, which I think any fan of Donnie Darko would probably also be really into. We uh, were called The Losers Club, which was uh, a reference to Stephen King's 1986 novel, It. We took that name to heart. We literally have seven members on the podcast, just as they have seven members in the Losers Club. We do full dissections of every book. We're doing uh, chronologically. So we started with Carrie, and we're currently about to prep the stand episode, which is going to run about four episodes long. No kidding. Uh, I would have to. Buddha. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it's insane. We're very comprehensive in terms of our approach to this. So the episodes run long. 
the carry, the first episode, I believe was, was almost three hours long. So they're tomes, so to speak. So we want them out there in case anybody who stumbles upon Stephen King can go back and do a deep dive with us. And we're going to be doing a lot of special episodes in between. Uh, we're going to try to reach out to a number of the directors that are working on the current adaptations, whether it's uh, Mike Flanagan with uh, Gerald's Game or Andreas Muschietti with uh, It or uh, everyone who's going to be involved in the Dark Tower whenever that comes out. So it's one of my favorite things to do right now when I'm not talking about Donnie Dargo. Hmm. Uh, I'm actually curious, how are you going to approach handling Dark Tower? There's a lot there. Yeah, it's it's going to be tough because the film itself, what we've been seeing so far from what little they've actually released, seems to be a conglomeration of like book one, a little bit to book two, some of three and six and seven. So we're kind of unsure how much they're actually going to be stuffing in this because it's technically a sequel to the books, which is really cool. And if I explain why it would ruin the ending for the, the last book of the series, but we're probably going to do the gunslinger with that and then go into Dark Tower lore and do a whole episode based on the movie. And we're going to try to talk to uh, Idris Elba, who's playing uh, Roland Deshane in the gunslinger. And hopefully, and I don't, I don't know if this is, will happen, but I'm going to go after Matthew McConaughey also, who's going to be playing the man in black, which is going to be great. You know, a few years ago, we made this huge cinematic universe of uh, Stephen King that Cap actually did the most iconic artwork we have on the site for it. Um, (laughs) It actually is in a frame. It's actually framed in our office here in Confidential Sound. (laughs) And uh, we actually predicted that McConaughey would play the Man in Black or, you know, a a version of Randall Flagg. Yeah. Now, Um, just to to elaborate so everybody realized, what you guys did was you outlined what would be hypothetically the Stephen King cinematic universe and how it could be done. Yeah. And recommendations for it. Yeah. Every book that you need to do to make it happen, how you would release it, when you would release it, who would play who. It was pretty extensive. I and mean, we spent a month and a half working on it. Many breakfasts and brunches going over this, like we were Hollywood agents. It was really lame, but we had a blast. And it's one of the best pieces I think we've published on the site in terms of just how comprehensive it gets. And well, you and really, really made a splash. Only I only need to read those. <laughs> I mean, yeah. mightn't you have somehow influenced McConaughey? I don't know about McConaughey, but I will say about the ending is very weird. Justin Gerber, who co-hosts on Gerber and Gerber on our video series, he actually was assigned the last book, the teacher uh, Dark Tower book, which ends the series. And he actually came up with the idea that the film is now using, which is crazy, which which blew our minds. He actually came up with a way to sequelize, have the movies be a sequel, as opposed to the idea that it would just be a straightforward adaptation. So when they actually did that, we were kind of blown away. We did wonder, maybe they saw something on there, but who knows? I mean, it, they, this thing has been in development for so long that it's impossible to say at this point. True, of course. Um, but it was cool that we were on the right track. I was curious, um, are you guys going to tap into the comics at all? The Dark Tower comics on, on the show? We are. Yeah, right. we're going to be, We're gonna once we get into the Dark Tower, Dan Caffrey, who's a senior writer at the site, and Matt Gerber, who's the other half of... Uh, Gerber and Gerber's, they're assigned all the comics for the stand when we do our stand episode because we all we try to touch up on every adaptation. So I think that's the only way to go. You know, you got to be thorough. And this, so, which is why, like, you know, for the Salem's Lot episode, I had to listen to an old radio broadcast that happened like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. But we have gone deep, we've gone far, and we've gone wide. <laughs> I think we've gone uh, to further and darker and weirder places than even Donnie did, if you ask me. So, <laughs> Definitely further um, further deeper places than we intended to go, but that's what happens when you get us together. Yeah, it's true. 
Cap and I have this tendency to talk in any location for all hours. We've been in diners until like four or five in the morning. We've been in living rooms like seven or eight in the morning. I think we've <laughs> even gone days. It's fun. I mean, that's, that's how you know your friends. Yes. Our friendship um, is very powerful <laughs> and defies all logic and sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to this. We hope you enjoyed it. And I really look forward to what Richard Kelly's doing next. Me too. You know, Kevin Smith is a pal of his. And he said a while back, Richard Kelly could be one of the great directors of our time. But Christopher Nolan got wrapped up in the Warner Brothers machine and Richard Kelly didn't. And that's how we no. were able to get Inception. And meanwhile, Richard Kelly in the past decade and a half has made three movies. And... It's yeah. a shame, and I hope we're going to see the light at the end of the tunnel and get more Richard Kelly movies because he's a really unique voice. If you haven't checked out The Box, that was a recent one for me. I slept on it, and it was incredible. Taking Us Out is a cover of one of the great eerie sci-fi songs of the 80s. It's the Proto-Men performing Mike and the Mechanics' Silent Running on Dangerous Ground. See you next time. Take the children and yourself And hide out in the cellar But now the fighting will be close at hand Don't believe the church and state And everything they tell you Believe in me I'm with the high command can you hear me? Can you hear me running? Can you hear me running? Can you hear my calling you? Can you hear me? Can you hear me running? Can you hear me running? Can you hear my calling you? 
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW.